So the question here uh, says, what is a good beginning practice for the lay person who wants to realize not-self? I suppose I would start by pointing out that, once again, the Buddha's teaching is not dogma that you, you just have to grasp and go along with. So, um, the teaching on not-self, or anatta, it is true, the Buddha, the Buddha did speak about this reality, and this is the nature of all things, all things are not-self. And the, the apparent experience of selfhood, you see it as a delusion, and a cause of a huge amount of suffering. If there's a me, well then there's mine, and there's a you, and there's yours, and we know the consequence of being attached to me and mine, you and yours. We have all sorts of arguments and even fall out and have nasty wars with each other. And the uh, fundamental solution to all this, he did point out, is the, the realization of the reality that this apparent, apparent nature of self is a delusion. It's not what it looks like. So this person here is saying, what is a good beginning practice? Well... I, I would certainly start by, by uh, suggesting that we don't have to prove that there's no self. Listen to what the Buddha said, yes, and, and be interested in it and, and heed his encouragement to investigate. But if our experience is an experience of selfhood, we don't try and override our experience with a, a dogmatic statement that there is no self. I know, I mean, I'm talking about this because this, is, this was my approach in the beginning when I heard about the Buddha's teaching on not-self. I had a great deal of faith and confidence and I had some agreeable experiences in meditation and, and uh, so I was really interested in everything the Buddha said and so I wanted to get my head around this not-self business and, and so I tried to prove that I didn't exist. And uh, I did get very skinny. <laughs> I've got some photographs of it. <laughs> There wasn't much of me left. It makes Hiriko over here look fat. I was, there wasn't much of me left. I was in a terrible state, actually. I was very, <clears throat> very anxious. and I was fighting myself, basically. It was a self-fighting a, a self. It was two deluded beings squabbling with each other. And fortunately, eventually, I, before I popped my clogs totally, I was able to uh, let go of that pursuit and come around and, and approach it from another angle. And, and eventually admit, well, actually, I do feel like I exist. And I imagine most of you do. I imagine you both, you know, you all feel like you're there. And so this is the place to start. Uh, yes, to have faith and confidence in what the Buddha said about this apparent nature of self. It is not the way it appears to be. His experience was there is no self, no substantial abiding existing entity that's permanent. There are all changing conditions. And this experience we have of meanness is just the cause of a lot of trouble. And if we 
if we don't doubt this meanness, if we don't question this meanness, this selfness, then there is no solution. There is no solution. So, so it's good to listen to that and have confidence in that, but not to just grasp it and try and prove it that's the case, but rather to say, well, how is it here now for me? So right here now for me, it does feel like there's a self here. And to study this, to look at this. And so as far as a beginning practice for a layperson who wants to realize not self, well, this is something that you can do in everyday life. Yeah. In all sorts of situations. Like, um, I don't know, was it ten days ago now that, who was it, Portugal put England out of the cup? Was it Portugal? Until Portugal did the business, the, you know, English people were really, yeah, 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 yeah. You know, really happy and we're going to do it. And, and then the Portuguese did their business and there's kind of a lot of very depressed, unhappy English people. Now, which is the real English people? Is it the happy ones, confident ones, or is it the miserable, de- depressed grumps? Drunk grumps. Yeah. <laughs> which is the real English person? Yeah. Yeah. So what happens is that when there's something, or a few days later there was, there was, there was France and, and those other people. Who were they? <laughs> Italians or something, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, and so the French were really flying high. I mean, they were really up there. They were just, they were really going to wipe these Italians and, and they were looking good, you know. Uh, things were looking good. Got off to a good start, apparently. I didn't watch the game, by the way, in case you wonder why I wasn't here at Puja last week. I, I wasn't watching the game during Puja. Um, but the English, you know, there was, there was, there was the, the French, sorry, there was a sense of, we, me, us. And that's, that's birth. That's birth. That's what happens. That's when that enthusiasm, that hope, that, uh, that zeal, the energy that comes with wanting to win, desire arises, and, and then you get this collective force. And then if the mind is not properly prepared, well, then you think that actually grasping a desire to win makes you happy. And you get, you know, so many millions of people doing it and they all agree that it's the way to get happy, so you all do it together. And then it's even more convincing because you all get happy then. And you're floating around on buses in Berlin and goodness knows what they were doing and saying all sorts of inflated things about their importance on the planet. And, and then the next thing, you know, is just a couple of little, little goals. And, and, well, where's that enthusiastic Frenchman gone to? He's dead. He died and became a depressed Frenchman. And that's another form of birth. You know, you get born into this and then you die and you get born into that. And so this is what the Buddha talked about, birth and death. And this is what we can study. We can study this in our daily life. The self is a dynamic process. That's why, that's why it looks like there's a self, because there is a self, actually. There is a self, but it's not the way it looks. It looks like there's a permanent self, a substantial self, that if we grasp at it, then it's going to make us happy and feel secure. We all want to feel secure, and the sense of me seems to be the thing that's been there the longest, so that's what we grasp at. And we think, we hope, it's going to make us feel secure. So we keep doing, we keep doing. And we've got to point out, well, you just keep doing it, you keep suffering, why don't you stop doing it? Well, the thing is, once you start to let go, once you stop doing this grasping thing, actually fear arises, and that's one of the protective, protective, uh, protective mechanisms of deluded sense of self. It's one of the defense mechanisms, what I'm trying to say. One of the defense mechanisms of the deluded sense of self is fear. As we grasp at the desire 
to be somebody and safe and secure in the sense of being somebody, we condition an equal and opposite sense of fear that we aren't anybody. And when you start to let go of one, you've got to deal with the other. And so you can get all this fear comes up of, you know, who am I? What am I? And so then you say, well, I can't do this practice. You go back to grasping a sense of self. Even being a spiritual self is better than being a, a no-self. So you get a lot of Buddhists going around, being very Buddhist all over the place. The spiritual people, being very spiritual. Whatever it is we grasp at, if we, if we, if we approach it carefully, because we do have to approach it carefully, because it's very subtle, and very tricky. The self is a very, very tricky dynamic. It's got all sorts of self-protective mechanisms in there. It doesn't want you to catch its tricks. So we can't just take a position against it like I did and fight it and try and prove it doesn't exist. That's, that's feeding it uh, with toxin. We need to get very, very skillful. And sometimes what we need to do is pretend we're not looking. Ajahn Chah used to say this is it's like this was way back in the 70s when the, the communists were on the borders with Thailand and Laos and Cambodia and, and sometimes they would cross the borders and insurgents and do a few nasty things and then go back again. And, and Ajahn Chah said, if you want to catch the communists, you know, they're very clever. Sometimes you've got to pretend you're not looking for them. Because mm-hmm. you've got to be more clever than they are. Because if they know you're looking for them, then you won't catch them. And so it is with the delusions that we suffer from, like, for instance, the deluded sense of self. You can't go at it, hammer and tongs, you know, I'm going to overcome this deluded sense of self. Sometimes you have to entertain it. You know, sometimes you have to let yourself be somebody. Mm-hmm. And then watch. You know, what's it, what does it feel like to be somebody? Yeah. What does it feel like to become something? Yeah. Grasping, you, if you study the Buddhist teachings on dependent origination, which is a more subtle interpretation of this process, you, you get the stimulus, the sense stimulus, and then you get the, the grasping, and then you get the sense of becoming, and then you get birth. This is the process that happens, and the grasping, the becoming, and birth, and then you get old age sickness and death. And then the whole thing happens again, round and round in circles. So if we watch this, well, what happens when some stimulus comes up, and you grasp, and you become, and it's there for a while, and you die. And we study this. You don't have to be a monk or a nun to do this. This is, this is something that everybody can do. Yeah. Whatever's going on in, in daily life, you can do it. Like when somebody pushes your buttons, yeah. that's what happens. To, you know, we become a habitual grasping. It's not a, it's not a very subtle thing. It, it's, it, on one level it's subtle in the sense that it's hard to discern, but it's compulsive. And it happens so quickly, we don't see it happening. You know, somebody who senses the right word, like if Ajahn Abhinando comes to see me and just starts talking about building regulations one more time, I explode. Because I'm just so fed up with building regulations. You can't put an electric light plug on these days without paying a fortune to an electrician to come in and do it. And plumbing, yeah. not to mention the fire regulations. You get those fire regulations, people, and it's just... Building inspectors, fire inspectors, plumbing inspectors. And it just drives me spare. I'm not quite sure why yet because I haven't sorted it out. But that's one of my buttons. If Ajahnabhinanda comes in, especially if I hadn't had my cup of tea in the morning, and starts talking about latest building inspection, I just explode. Very heedless. I become very unmindful. 
And, uh, and, but that's the sort of thing we can study. You know, to get interested, say, oh, right, that's what's going on there. You know, I just became a, a sort of a monster there. Or I can mention, like, if I just say to Ajnabhinando, Spain, and he all lights up. <laughs> he goes all, he smiles, you see, you see, you see? He starts to glow, you know. Because he had a Spanish girlfriend for a long time, for a very long time. And she was a, a very good artist, and, and, and they lived in Spain in a beautiful little cottage out in the middle of nowhere, but it was a gorgeous nowhere with this beautiful stream, and he speaks fluent Spanish, and he likes the sun, and, and all these things. And so he's got a little button there, so I just have to say the word, and then, ooh. A, a happy, happy Nanda is born in that moment. Now, we can all watch this in our daily life, and it's important we do watch it. Because this is the cause. This is the cause of suffering. This is this habit. You know, we, we take it for granted. We take the self for granted because it looks so substantial. But if we hear what the Buddha is saying and take it seriously and take it into our contemplation, take it into our meditation, then we can start to see how this self is born. We start to see it. And it's like, it's like seeing a, a mirage or a rainbow. The other day I was walking down to Bolam Lake. For the first time I saw the source of the rainbow. You see where it actually came down to the ground. I can see the red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, violet. The, the colors of the rainbow come right down to the ground. And I hear that there's a, there's a pot of gold at the, at the source of the rainbow. But that's, you know, I didn't go running after it because you realize that by my stage of life, there's, there's nothing there, actually. Yeah. It just looks like there's something there. It looks like it. But children would go running after the rainbow thinking there's a, a real something there. Or, or a mirage in the desert. You're thirsty, that's real, that's a reality. You look across the desert and you see what looks like water. It really does look like water, and you really are thirsty. So you run across, you run after it, thinking that when you get to that water, it's going to quench your thirst. You run and you run and you run and you run, and then you fall flat in the sand and die. Because it's not water at all. It's a mirage, it's an hallucination, it's an optical illusion. It really does look like water, it really, really does. And you are really thirsty. And it's a life and death matter, because if you don't get water, you are going to die. But you don't want to spend all your energy running after that mirage. And so if you get educated, you realize that's not the thing to do. And uh, So this is our spiritual education that Buddha taught about the not self. It's like basically asking us to check out and look to see what is the nature of self. Don't just believe and try and prove the non-existence of self and say Buddhists don't believe in self and anybody who believes in self has got you know, all the wrong ideas. You know, people who have soul theory, you know, they obviously don't know what they're doing. That's, that's not what was being encouraged. What's being encouraged is rather to find, use it as a lever to get us unstuck of the, this, this hab- habit that we do, this addiction, get us unhooked from the addiction to the habit of grasping, which is the dynamic that creates self. Self is this habitual pattern of grasping. So if we, we can trust in that, and in our meditation we start to look at it and see, you, like your mind can be peaceful and quiet, and, and then some fantasy, some little image comes up. You know, maybe I remember last time I was under came in and started talking about building rigs. And, right there and then, that, that stimulus happens. And you've got a choice at that point. That's the thing. That's what we've got to get to see. We've got to get to the point where we realize we've got a choice. If we grasp, 
we become, we're born as. If we don't grasp, we don't become, we don't get born. And that's the freedom the Buddha's pointing to. It's not like you don't feel anything or you don't see anything or you can't have fantasies or imagine or memories or whatever. Yeah. All of these things still happen. But for the Buddha, what was different was that there was no grasping. And because there was no grasping, then there wasn't anybody born there. There wasn't anybody to suffer. So even though the Buddha's body, for instance, suffered, there was no grasping at the sensation. So there was no body suffering. And so that's the freedom that he was talking about. And so in our meditation we can do it, and in and, 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 uh, and formal situations, contemplate it, and in daily life, and things that happen. When we get caught up and we become, whether it's become happy about you know, going to Spain or, or become indignant. There's a, there's a very sad item on the news recently. Somebody asked me about this the other day about uh, forgiveness because there had been an article on the news of a woman who lost her daughter, I think it was, in the 7-7 bombing last year in London. And uh, I think she was a vicar. And she had to resign from the priesthood because she said she could never forgive uh, the bombers. And when she was asked why she could never forgive them, she says, you can't forgive without justice. And because they're all dead, there won't be any justice. And so this poor woman is tragically condemned, in her view, to suffer for her whole life. And I listened to that, and I thought, well, where's the, where's the actual problem? You know, I just don't believe that any of us are condemned to suffer. That doesn't fit with me. I don't, I don't trust in that, that story. And from a Buddhist perspective, from a Dhamma perspective, what we're asked to do is not just to try and force ourselves to forgive, you know, or believe in, in something, believe in forgiveness, but rather to study, study the sense of, of, of lack of forgiveness, like resentment, bitterness. What happens when I lose something that I hold very dear? It has happened to me in my life. Something very, very dear is taken away. And the sense of tragic loss, tragic loss and bitterness and, and resentment when you think it's unjust, and, and it was unjust. I haven't lost a, a daughter or a son, and I must say I don't know what would happen if some nasty terrorist came along and dropped a bomb on Hanum here and, and killed all the lovely monks and Anagarikas and I was the only one left surviving. I, I don't know how I'd handle it. But what I do know is that I have faith and confidence that it is possible to handle it not through believing or shooting on ourselves by saying I should forgive, that's a terrible thing to say to ourselves or anybody else, but rather to use this teaching to inquire into the actuality, the reality of unforgiveness. What is going on when the memory of that pain, that person did that to me arises? That memory, that's not suffering. Actually, if we get subtle enough and we look at the memory is not suffering, the memory comes first and then comes something else that we invest in that memory. Now what that something else is, is actually bitterness or resentment. It's our own passion, whatever word we want to put on it, it's something that we invest in the memory. And if we do observe this, we investigate it carefully, give ourselves all the time we need to do it. Little by little we find that it is actually possible to inhibit the tendency to react 
which is a habit of grasping, as the heart contracts around the pain, which is, I don't want it, it shouldn't be this way, the heart contracts out of grasping, and there's a sense of me, indignant me is born. And that sense of indignant me, if this is a very righteous indignant me, can be so confident, it can give a tremendous feeling of certainty. And it's, so it's a very delicate and difficult thing to let go of. However, if we train our minds properly with mindfulness, it was right mindfulness consistently over a long period of time. This is not, these teachings are not something that we can understand intellectually and then suddenly, bang, we've got it. Yeah. The teaching the Buddha gave about the simile of, of how you know, the, the ocean deepens gradually. When you go into the ocean, it deepens gradually. He says, likewise, the deepening into the truth that he taught is something that happens gradually. It's not a sudden into the ocean. It's a gradual entering in. And so with the cultivation of sati, with the cultivation of right mindfulness, right understanding, there's a gradual realization of the strength that we all potentially have to inhibit the tendency to grasp. And when we inhibit the tendency to grasp, we feel for ourselves the ceasing of the tendency to become and be born as something. So it's not like we have to convince ourselves to stop being resentful to somebody and we should forgive them. No, that's, that's not all that helpful. But if we do train ourselves with mindfulness, regular reflection over a period of time, it's possible, it's possible to experience a separation where the memory can be there but it's neutral. I, um, this is something you can do for yourself, but also something you can observe in other people. I have a very dear friend who um, was uh, a 16-year-old girl in Dresden when the Allies uh, firebombed Dresden, even though everybody knew that this Dresden was, was, was uh, expanded. Hundreds and hundreds of thousands of refugees had, had chock-a-block full into the city of Dresden. The Allies all knew this. They still went in and firebombed it, totally. And this was only a few years ago, by the way. This isn't like, you know, like hundreds of years ago. This is just 50 years ago. We went in and just massacred this whole city of innocent refugees. And uh, my friend was living there at the time. as was a 16-year-old girl. And she used to go to the uh, railway station where a lot of refugees were uh, and take them soup. And on this one particular night, it was a Friday night, uh, her friend came along and said, let's go. She, for whatever reason, decided not to go. And so when the bombs came in and started firebombing Dresden, she was down in the basement and was one of the very few people that survived that and came out in the morning and saw what had happened to the city. There wasn't much left of it. And somehow, miraculously, she managed to escape on her own out of the city into the countryside and she found uh, a railway station with a train on it. She scampered on top of the, the train and the train took off and she felt safe and relieved that she'd survived this horrible thing. And She got to a, another town where she got off and she met up with uh, a relative there, which was a wonderful thing. But the next thing that happened, all the Russian soldiers came in and everything you can imagine that happens to 16-year-old girls during a war happened to her. And I'd known this woman, this friend of mine, for many, many years and she never mentioned any of it. She never mentioned it. I knew something had happened, but she never mentioned it. And then, and then something changed, and she just started talking about it, and it was completely finished. It was completely gone. 
The resentment, the bitterness was complete. She hadn't repressed it. She hadn't pushed it down. She had lived it through. She had done her practices for a long time consistently and skillfully, developing the watchfulness, the mindfulness in the mind and then in the body as well. This whole body-mind awareness, when it's properly trained, means that there can be the inhibition of the tendency to invest passion in our memories. Now, I speak of this, I don't speak of it lightly because these are terrible things. And when it happens to any of us, it's not a small issue. We lose somebody that we love. However, that doesn't negate the truth of it. It's still the fact that it is possible if we train ourselves properly, we prepare ourselves with mindfulness, that when these things do happen to us, the tendency to become somebody, a bitter somebody, a resentful somebody, and sadly often die as a bitter, resentful somebody, we can do something about that. So this question that asks about what is the beginning practice for lay people, I don't know whether you're a monk or a nun, it's the same thing. You know. The tendency to grasp and become, we're all doing it all of the time. And the evidence of it is that uh, we suffer. We suffer, we get disappointed, disillusioned. With Buddhism included, you, know, you see this happens over and over again, yeah. Well, you've seen them. Many of you have been coming here for years. And there's this inspiration and then there's disillusionment. And now, if we, have a, if we have the strength of mindfulness to be able to live through these experiences, these fluctuations of mood, well, then we don't have to become. And the, the result of that is, is that we understand this teaching little by little. So it's not a matter of we have to realize not-self straight away, but rather reprogram our thinking so we let go little by little. And, and the experience of letting go little by little is that it's like the, the feeling of meanness is just not so dense. It's not so solid. And so something happens, somebody praises you, and whereas before maybe you, you get all embarrassed and say, oh, I don't deserve that, and you know, become a humble somebody rather. Or you get all puffed up and say, yes, of course I deserve that. You know, <laughs> We have people like that around as well. You give them some praise and they, they recognize they deserve it. <laughs> yeah. The truth, actually, if you be, don't take yourself so seriously, well then it can just pass right through you. You still feel it, but you don't. the habit of grasping is, is inhibiting, so you don't become it. And the same with blame or criticism. Somebody insults you and, and you know, hurts you as says something nasty like that that Frenchman by the Italian man last week. You know, obviously that Frenchman had not been doing his Vipassana meditation. Otherwise that insult would have just passed straight through him. And who knows, the French might have won. You know? So this is a solution really. We pass in our meditation. <laughs> okay. We shouldn't speak too lightly about these things <laughs> because it's actually very important. <laughs> Um, but it is something you can practice in daily life. You know, don't don't think that that uh, this teaching on anatara is, is some amazing, difficult thing that only you know committed monks and nuns can do. This is something everybody can do in our everyday life. When we suffer, it's because we're taking ourselves too seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, so we don't go and shoot on ourselves about how I shouldn't be this way. Rather, we investigate the nature of the self. So who is this anyway? And that's getting caught up in thing. And little by little we learn to let go. So I hope this is um, a contribution to your contemplation. Thank you very much for your attention. Thank you.
ਕਰਨ 